Welcome to another episode of Ask the Zamboni Experts. I'm your host, Marty Elliott. Along with me today from the Zamboni Company is Doug Peters, our regional manager of the United States. Today, we're going to be talking and discussing fossil fuels and the proper handling of it. Our guest today is Terry Pichet, Technical Director of Ontario Recreational Facilities Association. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Doug. Morning, Marty. Good mo- morning, Marty. How are you doing? Fantastic. Well, Terry, let's get into this. Let's talk about uh, proper handling of fossil fuels. Um, uh, we uh, have discussed uh, what's uh, recently happened in, uh, in Ontario and uh, want to get your uh, feedback on uh, certain topics uh, regarding the proper handling of fossil fuels, the SOP, best practices. Let's get into this deep. Uh, first of all, are there any laws that cover fossil fuels within the Ontario province? Marty, let's go down memory lane so that we can uh, capture some of the history of uh, what's gone on in the past and what's driven the Ontario Recreation Facility Association to do many of the things that we do as an organization. And uh, in fact, they're completely connected to uh, the uh, safe use of fossil fuels. So historically, the association has uh, been active in providing professional development and Uh, If we take a look back in regards to how we uh, began what we did in in regards to special uh, certification for working in ice rinks, it was actually uh, rooted in uh, a fossil fuel incident many years ago with uh, young Tim Hickman, who unfortunately was killed while at work uh, refueling an ice resurfacer. And it's a lot more complicated than that. We go into detail uh, in both our uh, ice mains equipment operations program and uh, our uh, safe ice uh, ice resurfacer operator training session. And uh, from the coroner's inquest, there was a lot of recommendations that came out on how the association, in fact, could um, lead the industry or provide leadership to the industry in regards to being safer at work. Now, uh, Tim's mother, Shirley, came to the association and we committed to her that we would not uh, let Tim's uh, accident be lost on the next generation. And so we uh, started down the road of creating the courses that uh, everybody's much aware of, the certified ice technician designation. And really that's, like I said, the foundation block uh, on how uh, we move forward. Now, is there regulations? There's regulations in every province, territory, and state in regards to the handling, storage, uh, and and, uh, refueling or use of every fossil fuel. Every one of them would have some form of regulations that's associated with it, and it would vary depending on uh, where it was being used and who, in fact, was using it. So, for an example, when you pull up to a gas pump uh, to uh, to fuel up your uh, vehicle, they would have very strict legislation, but our responsibilities fall under the same type of legislation. We would just be a, a separate section or subsection to it, but a lot of times it overlaps. The problem that we've got, or one of the problems that we have, we have lots of problems, is that um, everybody's done a bang up job in regards to reducing the risk of handling any form of fossil fuel or noxious gas. So when a manufacturer like yourself drops off a piece of equipment brand new, uh, you guys have had uh, strict regulations that you had to conform to. So before you could drop it off, uh, it was very clear in regards to whatever fossil fuel or how it was being powered, how it will be designed and and uh, what uh, safety equipment and devices must be in place before you drop it off to potentially me as the owner. 
the wheels start to fall off is after you drop it off because what you've done your due diligence when you drop it off or all manufacturers have uh, and now it becomes my responsibility of the owner to stay on top of it so from there it becomes um, a little bit more complicated again um, depending on the fossil fuel that's being used so you alluded to a recent incident and we have uh issues inside the uh, the industry not in just the ice but when we get into the other aspects of recreation that involve fossil fuels but specifically the event in south uh, western ontario that still continues to be reviewed by the governing authorities um had a situation where uh, a cng tank unfortunately exploded the good news is nobody was hurt and lots of lessons can be learned from it so what uh, we decided to do and we sent out uh, immediately alert to remind our members of the importance of ensuring that the life expectancy or the expiry of any of the tanks uh, that are associated with CNG or even propane in fact are current and up to date. So the partnership that I've got is with um, the people that maintain my equipment that may be a manufacturer or maybe someone who is uh, licensed to deal with this type of equipment. And the assumption is, is that they're most likely going to take a look at the CNG tanks to make sure that the tanks are current and up to date. But that's not a guarantee. And it's not the responsibility of the maintenance uh, truck or the, or the mechanic that's taking a look at it. That's my responsibility as the owner. I need to inventory this type of equipment and I need to make sure that uh, I know um, when the tanks need to be retested. Now, what we emphasize uh, as part of the IMEO course and the Ice Main Squimper Operations course is part of the circle check is that the people that operate this piece of equipment have to conduct a visual inspection. So it doesn't matter what type of fuel you've got. There's a responsibility to make sure that when we take the equipment out, that in fact it's safe. My job as the manager of the facility is to make sure that I understand the legal responsibilities that are associated. And here's the key points. Here's, here's the takeaway. I'm responsible to make sure that how it's transported, how it's safely stored, and how in fact it's used. And then from there, I have to figure out if there's an SDS, a safety data sheet, and I have to train staff on uh, the risks and hazards that are associated, whatever fuel it is. So, uh, I mean, you offer a variety of different pieces of equipment. You've got gasoline, you've got natural gas, you've got diesel, you've got uh, battery powered equipment. And each one of them has um, different responsibilities and sta uh, different safety measures, right down from the design of the room uh, that the equipment is being used in, uh, to like I said, how in fact it is going to uh, to uh, be used. Now, one of the things that part of our history was, we go back maybe 20 years ago, one of the governing authorities, the Technical Standard Safety Authority, uh, set out a bulletin that uh, basically shifts the landscape and ice arenas from coast to coast. So for those that have been in the industry a long time, they would know that we basically came from a gasoline powered ice resurfacer environment. It was most likely the primary fossil fuel that was being used in the 70s. And in the 80s, um, we became that much more conscientious in regards to toxic fumes and propane and natural gas be became what was considered to be a better choice. So when we started to use propane, the Technical Standard Safety Authority sat on a bullet and they said, look at anybody that handles um, 
connects, disconnects, or stores propane must have what's referred to as an ROT, a record of training. Now, the record of training had to be provided by a certified uh, training authority, and it had to be repeated every five years. So basically, anybody that was using propane in our industry had to have a license, and they, they was no different than a, a student's card, which basically said that they had been trained, and it, it had a, a initiation date and an expiry date. The RFA invested in getting trainers uh, qualified, and we went about the province uh, trying to uh, get our members up to speed. Then along came the next alpha dog in governance, and that was our Ministry of Labor. And TSSA and MOL sort of got into a little bit of a dogfight, and the Ministry of Labor said, hey, you know what? Underneath the Occupational Health and Safety Act, it says that owners have a responsibility to provide training. Why are you doing what you're doing? So... The TSSA kind of backed off and then they put it over into the Occupational Health and Safety Act, which kind of governs everything. Now, again, every province, uh, territory and state has some sort of health and safety laws and uh, may not be the exact wording, but it basically covers uh, the exact same things regardless where you are geographically. So the record of training responsibility was dropped and it became a responsibility of every workplace to ensure that their staff was trained to whatever fossil fuel um, they were using inside uh, the uh, the facility or inside their operation. So we shifted. Um, so we shifted away from a formal record of training for propane and said, you know what, why don't we start to catalog uh, all the potential fossil fuels and noxious gases that a recreation operation may uh, come into play. So when I talk about noxious gases or toxic gases, uh, we're talking about things like ammonia that's going to be found in the refrigeration plant. We know our members are going to come in, in contact with that. Uh, we're talking potentially about chlorine. So if a facility has a swimming pool that's attached to the ice rink, they're going to have a variety of different chemicals also that would fall under the same piece of legislation. And then we start to get in and I mean, if we go back 10 years ago, there was a variety of different edgers um, and there still is. I mean, propane uh, and battery powered are the primary ones that are out there, but there's still gasoline powered equipment. And then we started to drill down to all the other pieces of equipment that can potentially be found in an arena. So, for example, uh, some rinks will have a forklift. So, you know, again, propane may come into play there. And we said, well, why don't we talk about uh, fossil fuel and noxious gas safety generally so that we can talk about the risks and hazards. And that's what we've married into the training uh, course. Now, I, I can tell you uh, that, like I said, I've been around the industry for quite a while. And anytime that there's an incident uh, that involves the majority of the equipment, it usually can be traced back um, to uh, a lack of training. Uh, or a lack of maintenance and operation. Rarely is it any of the manufactured pieces of equipment because, and again, it's going to sound like I'm uh, potentially trying to uh, support the manufacturers. And in this case, I, I truly am because like I said in my opening commentary, you guys are very strictly governed in regards to uh, how uh, the quality of the piece of equipment must be had uh, when you drop it off with my piece of equipment. So. Again, uh, that's basically how we got to where we were uh, or where we are and when it comes to uh, fossil fuel. 
Um, the takeaways are this, is that if you've got any fossil fuels inside your facility, it is the manager's responsibility to make sure that all staff that are expected to handle, use, store, dispose, transport this piece of equipment, in fact, have got some sort of formalized training program. And that means in our world, in the province of Ontario, our Ministry of Labour says, look, it, to be recognized as a training program, here's the core elements. There has to be written documentation that the person getting the training can personally take away. So that can be a one pager, it's theirs, that, that's a reference. Then that gets blended into the operations manual. So we need some sort of formal training program. Then we need, if applicable, some form of workplace specific training. That means that somebody who has been doing it for a long time shows the next generation how to safely move forward with it. And then ultimately, there needs to be some formalization of a testing program. And that's why we've built all our training programs the way that we do. When you come to our courses, you get a manual, that's your walk away. We will either give you a demonstration uh, as part of the training program or uh, indicate what the workplace specific training requirements are. And then there's always a testing component that's attached to it that uh, emphasizes or confirms that in fact you are, you are walking away with what we shared with you. So that's the start. It's not the end of the training program. Now we have to go back and do the workplace specific um, uh, training portion uh, to make sure that we are, are are conforming. But even more importantly is that it has to be repeated. I can't train a worker once. I have to continually confirm that in fact whatever I've got in place remains current, relevant, and up-to-date and that in fact uh, the uh, training program reflects that. And then in the end the um, protective device is the supervisory staff that are inside the facilities, they need to be conducting checks and balances with the operators or the frontline staff to see if in fact they're actually conforming to all the information and in the training. Because often what will happen is that we send away staff uh, to a training program and then they come back to work and they're they go right back into their old bad habits. They don't wear their personal protective equipment. They don't read the SDS. Uh, they don't uh, do what's supposed to happen when they connect, disconnect, or refuel. Often that has to take place outside if there's not adequate ventilation. Um, so those are those are basically the checks and balances in regards to um, of, of fossil fuel safety. Again, I can't overemphasize that we are very pleased that the incident, uh, recent incident in south and western Ontario resulted in no types of injuries. Yes, there was some damage to the facility, uh, and I'm sure that once the final outcomes uh, are uh, released, we'll blend them into our training program to make sure that those lessons aren't lost. So hopefully that kind of explains what's going on here in the province of Ontario, and I think it blends over to uh, other portions of North America and beyond. That's great uh, feedback, Terry. So you know what? Our audience is going to listen to this podcast. You you recognize uh, um, as far as an SOP, standard operating procedures, uh, record of training, um, best practices. Let's bring it down to the level of the operators. Let's talk about that. Um, what are what what you would recommend best practices and you know i train uh many uh operators on different machines based on their fossil fuels whether it be cng um or lpg or gasoline let's talk about the best practices 
that they need to implement so that this situation that we are talking about um, doesn't occur in the future. Can you give your best practices, top five, top 10, and uh, share that with the audience? I mean, ultimately, uh, Marty, there, there's two partners here. One of them is uh, hypothetically the supervisory staff or the administrative staff inside the building. So they have a responsibility to ensure that the equipment is maintained to the same standard as what the manufacturer dropped it off at. If they're doing that, that's step number one. Step number two is that they need to take a look at the regulatory responsibilities because for an example there is a response there is an obligation under regulation to safely store propane outdoors uh, it shouldn't be not should not be stored inside the uh, the facility unless it's very cold outside so we're talking about january uh, and it can be brought in uh, shortly before it is uh, used because if we don't warm up the tank it's not going to be used when we when we uh, uh, go to uh, change the tank over. So my responsibility is to make sure that all the mechanical stuff are in place in regards to the safe use of the fossil fuel. Now this includes obviously personal protective equipment and then my responsibility is to provide the training. Once all those elements as the supervisor are in place, then we move over to the responsibility of frontline staff. And like I said, now they got to literally start to apply what they've been shown. I don't know how many times I go into facilities and it's not to conduct an audit or, or to be um, critical, but there will be that two gallon gas can uh, sitting on the floor in the ice resurfacing room that they may use to refuel the edger. There'll be propane tanks uh, attached to, to the ice resurfacer. And then there'll be a variety of different cleaning supplies that are stored uh, again uh, in the same uh, building, and all that is 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 a an attitude of you know nothing's ever happened before. So everything is in place. If we take a look at the SDS, the safety data sheet, it outlines basically everything that we have to do to design an SOP, a standard operating practice. Now the manufacturers will always have a variety of recommendations in the owner's manual, and we always emphasize to anybody that comes into the class that the manufacturer of their piece of equipment is their best resource. But before you start to bother uh, uh, staff like yourself, they need to take a little bit of ownership. They need to read the SDS. They need to actually read the owner's manual. Often what they want to do is short track that and they'll rather pick up the phone or send you a text so that you can give them a personal tutorial in regards to something that they can read. Uh, and then there's always a variety of different uh, training videos that are available online. So the online uh, growth uh, library in regards to uh, how to do things safely and at times unsafely. And you can learn just as much from watching things that are done unsafely as, as watching them that are done safely. So if the operator takes some ownership in regards to their own safety and actually applies uh, the basic principles of using whatever fossil fuel that's uh, uh, in their care and control, uh, the chances of them getting hurt at work are, are reduced dramatically. So maintain the piece of equipment, follow the basic safety rules, don't cut any corners, don't take any uh, any uh, shortcuts, and the chances of any uh, getting hurt at work from a fossil fuel are dramatically reduced. That's great feedback, Terry. So let me ask you something. Uh, the responsibilities, I know we've covered a lot so far, but let's talk about the responsibilities of the workplace and the parties in Ontario when it comes to 
uh, fossil fuel safety. Um, go back to what you were just talking about, but let's take it a step further. We have arena managers, we have operators, uh, we have the OEMs. Um, once the machine is delivered, uh, again, what are the top five, if you will, or top 10 that these operators, arena managers need to put in play if they're not from municipality uh, standpoint, that they need to pay attention to and make it part of their best practices or standard operating practice. So everything across North America, Marty, in fact, is standardized on this topic. It, it may be worded slightly different and it may have uh, a different look, but the information I'm fairly confident is going to be exactly the same. So you're looking for top five off the top of my head. I'm going to suggest this. If I'm a facility manager, I need to understand the regulations that are associated with the product that's being used. So if I'm using propane, there is a propane code. So I need to familiarize myself with the propane code. So in Ontario, that's what we do through our training programs. Our partners in the US, US IRA, they blend that information in. It's a little bit more difficult for them because um, it's sim simplistic in my world because I get to talk about one province. They represent 50 different states. So they're more of a, a general approach, but depending where they are, in fact, uh, presenting the materials, uh, conversations will break out in regards to local or regional responsibilities. So know A, the specific regulation, if it's gasoline, if it's propane, or if it's, or if it's natural gas. The second one I need to be uh, aware of is local building codes. So often what will happen is these buildings will go through its life cycle, uh, as I suggested to you, we started off with gasoline. So what happened was the majority of the ice resurfacing rooms were built to the standards of the building code for that type of fossil fuel. And then when we go to the next uh, piece of equipment, the building is aging, the ice resurfacer age, we trade it in, we get a new one, we get the, the, the uh, uh, most updated fossil fuel. Let's go to propane. Well, it's my responsibility now to make sure that the ice resurfacing room matches the fossil fuel. So the gasoline ventilation system may not equate to propane. So as we talk about in the IMEO course, when it comes to propane, propane is 1.5 times heavier than air. When it's released, it goes down. So it sits in the drains. It doesn't naturally dissipate. So as a facility manager, I need to know that most likely this drain has to now be power vented. So we've had members, instead of doing the upgrade as required under the building code, um, actually just fill the drains with concrete and make their members now or make the operators uh, dump outside uh, instead of having that vent there so they, they would drop it off. So they filled in, filled in the snow pits and filled in the drains because it was just going to be too expensive to bring it back up to code. Then I have to apply what type of hot water system I've got inside that room to make sure that it conforms. So if you go back to the Hickman accident, it was a the perfect storm of uh, problems. It was gasoline, which is nothing there's nothing wrong with gasoline powered equipment. In this case, it was cold gas and a warm machine. And really uh, the contributing factor was an improperly installed hot water, recently installed hot water tank that didn't meet code. Uh, 
So it, it, th those were the contributing factors. That's my responsibility is that I, and I don't have that expertise, but as the facility manager, I've got to source out um, who can come in and evaluate that in fact that I am compliant. So is it local building officials? Is it a, is it a, a contracted professional that comes in and, and conducts an audit and evaluation and makes sure that I'm in compliance? That's something that I have to determine as a facility manager. Then I got to break it down to uh, operator training to make sure that they're conforming with whatever those responsibilities are. And then the, the last bullet or the last uh, point is that there has to be ongoing supervision to make sure that uh, all operators are conforming to what the, say, uh, the safe uh, best practices are inside the facility. So if all of those components are in place, like I said, the potential for a situation to happen in an ice rink uh, is dramatically reduced. So let me ask you, Terry, uh, regarding obligations for record of training for fossil fuels, where does that stand? Who's obligated? Who's responsible? Who owns that? Where do we take that next to make sure? I mean, this is all, this is all sounding great, but at the end of the day, our audience that's listening to this, we need to tell the message who is owning this? Somebody has to own this. Somebody has to take responsibility to make sure the operators at all times are following best practices and SOP. So when it comes to the record of training, let's talk about that so that make we make sure that these operators are following the best practices and SOP. Give me your thoughts on that. The, the emphasis of the conversation seems to be on fossil fuels, but the reality is, Marty, is that every task that an operator is giving as part of their responsibility inside the facility has the exact same responsibilities that I've just explained for fossil fuels. So if they're using an edger, if they're using any other a piece of equipment, the same steps come into play. So I mean, we always use Wemis for an example, and Wemis has been around for years, and there's not anybody that we don't come across in our training programs that hasn't taken a Wemis program of some uh, form. Um, the reality is, is that most people are Wemis trained um, for core, but they have never actually finished a Wemis training program. So I, I'm using this as an example because we'll ask the question. Who's Wemis trained? And the hands will shoot up. And I'll, the, the next question will be, well, who's been uh, Wemis trained multiple times? And again, an array of hands will go up. And then I'll ask, how many of you actually finished the second portion of the Wemis training? And I will get dead silence in the class. They've gone to the, the training or they've taken the training online. They've got their certificate. But what they failed to do was when they left the course, they needed to workplace specific training for the training that they took to be uh, acceptable. So they've been trained multiple times in the theoretical presentation of Wemis, but there's never been a practical component. So we've talked about fossil fuels. Wemis or fossil fuels fall under Wemis, but so do many other aspects. That's why when you go into a facility, you see an operations and training manual that's everything that's in there. You just can't give to an employee. The steps I just explained for fossil fuels are supposed to happen with every one of those SOPs that exist inside a facility. And the, and the reality is, or the responsibility is, is that that's supposed to be completed before anybody goes to work. But historically, what have we done? We've hired these people and we take the next five to 10 years to actually train them on their job. And by that time, they've picked up so many bad habits 
that I'm not just training, I'm retraining or I'm recalibrating or trying to change the channel in regards to the way that they're approaching some of this stuff. If we can get it right with them coming out of the gate, those are habits that they're going to have for their whole career. If they go to work and they pick up bad habits, they're hard to get rid of, Marty. So anything that happens inside a recreation facility requires some level of uh, training to take place. And you go back to the three core elements. They got to walk away with some information that they've got to be shown by a competent person and there needs to be a testing component to it. And that's a responsibility generally posted in every health and safety law in every province and every territory and every state. So it's it's just not the province of Ontario. It echoes from coast to coast to coast to coast. Right. So let's talk about uh, what the IMEO, the Ice Maintenance Equipment Operation Course, offers when it comes to handling fossil fuels. Why don't you share with our audience exactly what that covers in the program uh, when it comes to handling fossil fuels? Actually, Marty, what we do in the IMEO course is we're at 20,000 feet. So what we do is we take everybody that's in the class and say, look, at here's the potentially all of the different fossil fuels or power sources that you could come across in your career. We don't have the time to provide them with a com comprehensive training program in regards to every one of these fuels. We provide them with an overview of, of the known risks and hazards that are associated with the different fuels or power sources. And then we tell them that when they get to work, this is one of the things that they need to have on their checklist before they go to work. There needs to be a, compre a comprehensive internal uh, training program specific to the fossil fuels or noxious gases that they're going to be responsible for on, on their watch. And like I said, they're supposed to get that before they go to work, not two, three months later after they've been hired. And uh, this is something that has to uh, improve in the hit, in the industry, uh, again, from uh, from coast to coast to coast. Yeah, I get that, I get that. So let's bring uh, Doug Peters in, our regional manager for the United States. Hey, Doug, talk about south of the border. What pra best practices, SOP, are in, in uh, your uh, neck of the woods and what uh, training you're uh, involving your operators and uh, customers in? Well, it's something that uh, I want to throw a question at Terry because it, it's a comment I've made to uh, multiple customers and I was just talking about it yesterday. Uh, Terry, how many times uh, when you're out visiting facilities do you run across propane tanks uh, where they're out of date code? If you could say percentage-wise, out of 10 tanks in a facility. I'm going to suggest to you, uh, Doug, we're in a li little bit different uh, position than most other provinces and territories. And uh, I'm going to suggest to you that very few uh, have an outdated propane tank. And let me tell you why. Uh, a few years ago in the province of Ontario, not related to our industry, there was an accident outside of Toronto. And it was a, the Sunshine Propane Supply Company. And uh, basically what happened there was uh, a worker was killed when the filling station blew up and it decimated a large area in the Toronto area. And this resulted in the Technical Standards Safety Authority having their feet held to the fire because it was discovered that their inspectors, in fact, had been into that facility in multiple times and provided them with warnings on how they can improve the safety in that facility. 
and then never conducted any follow-up to it. So there was a lot of investigation that went on. The end result was the industry got basically cleaned up. And usually that's what happens. There's a bad incident, bad accident, and it forces a reaction to the to ensure that it's not going to be repeated. Unfortunately, somebody usually has to lose their life before we start doing what we were supposed to be doing. So we used to get tanks that were outdated because most of them, most of the tanks we didn't own, they were owned by the propane supplier. So they were on a, a tilty world type thing, come in the back of the truck, get back, dropped off the uh, back of the rink and we would use them when they were empty, they would recycle them. And that's pretty common in, in most province, territories and states. And it, before the sunshine event, we would get them with uh, all the damage that we outlined in the IMEO course. They'd be rusted, they'd be outdated, they may not uh, have a proper certification uh, on them. Uh, and we would just use them. Now uh, what's happening is the suppliers have uh, definitely responded and the tanks are not as in anywhere near the shape they were in before that event. So um, that's in our neck of the woods is where we're at. Well, you're lucky down here in the States and I'm always surprised when I walk into a facility and uh, if they've got a fuel powered machine, it's more than likely going to be propane. And I can go take a look. If they've got 10 tanks provided to them by a supplier, I'll find that eight out of the 10 will be out of date. And it's surprising to me uh, because it, you would think that a propane supplier would know what is um, what are the regulations as far as what they have to live by with the tank that they supply. Um, you know, another thing that we've seen down here in the States is uh, I can recall a facility where they had a channel ox chained to the control rod uh, guide on the back of the machine, and they would use that to tighten down the uh, fitting from the hose to the tank. And a lot of people may not know that those are only supposed to be hand tightened. And I, I think this is something, I don't know if uh, ORFA has a, a session on that. Uh, I haven't sat through one of the ice rink uh, or ice resurfacer uh, operator sessions if it's something I'm going to guess you guys probably have uh, something where you talk about that and uh, what best practices are for uh, maintaining the tanks at least if they the customer owns them uh, they should be checking the o-rings both on the hose side and the tank side but um, it, it is something that a lot of people may not be aware of uh, down here in the states and like I say when I walk into facilities and I see those numbers uh, and point them out to the customers, they're surprised because usually the response is that, hey, we get our tanks from a propane supplier, wouldn't they know better? And uh, the obvious answer to that is no, if they're delivering tanks that are out of date. Yeah, the the all of the ORFA courses give examples, uh, and the emphasis here is examples of SOPs, and we would cover everything that you talked about because that's generic information. We, we talk about things when it comes to uh, propane that, yeah, anytime you think that you need to use a tool to tighten up, there's a problem. These are hand tight only. We explain to them the difference between a left-handed thread and a right-handed thread in propane. Won't get into the mechanics of that. Maybe we can attract a couple of people to our training program so that they understand that there are different threads. The, the connections don't go the exact same way. We explain to them how to how to test to see how much fuel's in a propane tank. So we, we talk, like I said, generically. 
about the safety factors, but we also emphasize that this is not replacing the, uh, the workplace-specific requirement of an employer. Now, getting back to age tanks, the best thing that's happened here in the province of Ontario, and I suspect that you've got it in the States, is the exchange programs for 20-pound cylinders that uh, many of the big box stores offer. That allows you to take a tank that is no longer certified and drop it off and get a brand new one so that you don't have to worry about it. So again, uh, we're cleaning up some of the things that are out there. Uh, when there's a problem, I, I think what we need to do, uh, Doug, is to remind them this. When there's a problem and there's an investigation, everybody's going to be a partner. I know that you guys are going to be asked questions about your piece of equipment if it's involved and you're going to have to show the data in regards to how it was designed and engineered and, and produced. And then they're going to go to the supplier and say, did you drop a tank off that was uncertified? Yes. You know you shouldn't have did that. Uh, do now. So now there's some responsibility there. But what our, our listeners need to understand is that they're also going to ask the facility did you accept the tank that was outdated or unsafe? Yes. Did you use it? Yes. Now you're a partner also. So we, we just can't go back to one of the, the prongs and say, you're the problem. There's enough safety mechanisms in place that all the partners have got a role and responsibility. It's when one of the three or all three break down that the problems start to uh, get out of control. Yeah, this just, uh, it's nice to see organizations such as yourself, uh, Terry, with ORFA, uh, that are taking a look and trying to educate customers. It still comes down to responsibility of the facility staff uh, to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to do. And this, when there's incidents like this, just like when there's an air quality incident, I think it gives uh, maybe more than a gentle nudge uh, towards the electric ice resurfacer. And this might be a good time to, to jump in, Marty, and uh, talk about um, the, the trends you're seeing now uh, up in Ontario, which maybe took a little bit longer to, uh, to go that way than uh, maybe some of the territories down here like New England and Minnesota. And we still have, uh, like Michigan, because of, of Detroit being the car capital of the world, uh, it's still trending behind other areas of the country. But uh, it seems to be that more and more people are realizing that electric machine is the way to go uh, for the future because it eliminates a lot of these things and concerns that they're having to deal with with a fossil fuel type machine. Unequivocally, Doug, I tell you, it's, uh, it's, uh, I've only been with Zamboni uh, almost five years now, and what I've seen specifically in the Ontario market, um, when I came on board, I, I'm going to say roughly 20% was electric, 80% was fossil fuel, and uh, we're switching the other way. It's becoming uh, um, the choice, if you will, the uh, uh, moving to the uh, green, if you will, um, uh, the best practices for uh, our climate and, and eliminating fossil fuel. So let me ask you, Terry, let me bring you back in on this. What, are your, uh, what, are you, what is ORFA introducing in their IMEO course, uh, the Ice Maintenance Equipment Operation Program, when it comes to electric ice resurfacers being acid, uh, lead acid, or ACs, and then uh, lithium ion, which uh, we were the first OEM to introduce into the marketplace. So uh, why don't you share your thoughts on that moving from fossil fuel over to uh, electric component ice resurfacers? Well, I'm about to show my age. Uh, 
because every time you guys, and I'm talking manufacturers, generally refer to battery technology as electric, I have a hard time making that connection because I'm old enough to remember when you actually had an electric model that had a cord that hung from center ice, uh, much like a lawnmower. So every time I hear electric, that's, I immediately go to this type uh, of operation that ran a motor with a cord on it. But I appreciate what uh, you guys are, are trying to do uh, in regards to changing the channel away from fossil fuels to battery. Uh, I see uh, some movement towards this type of technology. Um, however, in the province of Ontario, there's 444 municipalities. And out of the 444 municipalities, we calculate somewhere around that 400 to 420 actually have some sort of um, uh, ice sheet. Uh, and then from there, uh, what we do is melt it down is that around 80% of that 400 uh, communities are in populations under 10,000. So they're struggling in regards to the cost difference between fossil fuels and battery technology. And, and they'll outweigh, uh, or they'll weigh, I guess, uh, the advantages and the costs and try and figure out if in fact it fits in. So we'll, we'll watch and see how's back, uh, how battery technology continues to grow, but you're right. It, it definitely has got a lot more traction now than it did 10 years ago. And I, it's like anything else, right? The more you get out into the marketplace, uh, the less they start to cost. And that's just the way that business is designed. It's got nothing to do with ice resurface or manufacturers. That's just, that's just a fact of life, right? So well, uh, let's see where it goes. We're there with, we're there with edgers, right? I mean, edgers, yeah, yep. I, yep. I believe that the battery technology in edgers 10 years ago, when we were talking about battery powered edgers, everybody would just kind of roll their eyes and say, oh, okay, here we go again. But it's taken uh, the manufacturers a while to um, critique uh, and get the equipment to uh, where it is very reliable. It, it, it is uh, uh, a really nice piece of equipment. Uh, and the battery technology, pretty sweet. If you can afford it, uh, that definitely is the way to go. You know what? You you touch on a subject, uh, and I'll uh, I'll preface to say 444 municipalities in Ontario. That relates to in our audience. If you want to understand the Ontario marketplace, we are the largest marketplace in the world of arenas. That being said, uh, we are sitting at roughly in the Ontario marketplace, based on my uh, uh, research, we're sitting at about 40% electric and 60% fossil fuel. So I walk down this path. When it comes to what our topic is, the fossil fuel and the issues that are prevalent in front of us and what is available now. And Terry, you talked about the initial costs and uh, capital expenditure for municipalities. Yes, there's a larger upfront cost. But when you talk about ownership over a 10-year period, um, taking a look at what we've investigated and what we've researched and what we've identified as black and white numbers, at the end of the day, the municipality is way farther ahead and eliminating, if you will, this issue that we're talking about, the handling and proper handling of fossil fuels within municipal arenas and, and private arenas as well. So that being said, uh, I think we're all walking down the right path and we'll continue down the right path and, pro and providing the best practices in SOP. Um, so that being said, Terry, I'm going to leave you uh, on, on a final note and ask you to share with our audience 
what you want to share as far as what is the best practices. I know we've talked about it, but those operators, those municipalities, those arena managers that are still managing a fossil fuel ice surfacer, what they need to do and make sure they're doing it right day in and day out. So we don't have to read of unfortunate situations moving forward. Marty, everything that we've touched on in the short time we've been together is not brand new. It's It's been around for, the Occupational Safety Act's been around for more than 40 years. The responsibilities haven't changed. What hasn't really changed is our compliance to basic health and safety responsibilities. So I'm gonna leave it with this, is that if you're not embracing, embracing what your responsibilities are, if you don't know what your responsibilities are, then ultimately you're a contributing factor to any type of situation involving fossil fuels inside your workplace. I don't. I wouldn't want that on my watch. I want to make sure that if I'm in a supervisory or management responsibility with an ice rink, that I'm conforming uh, to regulations. Now, it, you know, people again will roll their eyes when it comes to legislation, acts, codes, uh, et cetera, and they'll go too cumbersome, makes uh, makes life difficult in regards to the way that we want to conduct business. We emphasize in our training programs that every one of those documents may come in black and white, meaning that the, the uh, print is black and the page is white, but in reality, it's been uh, written in blood. Most times somebody has given up their life, so the response is uh, that we don't want it to happen again. So they come up with rules or suggestions or recommendations or requirements for us to conform to generate safe workplaces. Everything that's in place, it's not there to make your life difficult. It's make sure that you have life at the end of your shift. So my job is to research it, understand it, put the mechanisms in place to reduce the potential of losing anybody on my watch. That really is the responsibility. Now, the other one that we haven't spent a lot of time on in any of our training programs, but it's becoming one of the cornerstones to everything that we're presenting, we're reminding the operators that they're a stakeholder. It's just not my job as your supervisor and manager to babysit you while you're at work. You really need to take some of the responsibility for working safely and conducting yourself accordingly so that you can go home at the end of your shift. Now, if I'm failing, providing you training and personal protective equipment or any other tools that you need, well, there's processes in place to make sure that you're there. And sometimes if you're arguing with management because they don't believe in it, Sometimes maybe you just have to walk away and find someplace else to work so that in fact that you're going to live a long, healthy life. Those are choices that each one of us has to make when we, when we wake up every morning. And that's the trick. We want to go home at night and we want to wake up in the morning. I can't uh, say it any better than that, Terry. Well said. And you know what, audience? Um, it is a job. It's a career. And uh, many of the people that I'm in front of, and I know Terry and Doug, you're in front of all the time, that are passionate about what they do. It's so critical that uh, when you walk into your workplace, that you are ready, you're prepared, you have your best practices, you have your standing operating procedures, your proper PPE to be able to deal whether you have a fossil fuel or an electric machine running your uh, surface so that you're properly prepared to give the best product to your customer base being the best ice. Hey, Terry, I want to thank you again for spending the time with us. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Um, Doug, thank you as well. If you have a question for one of our experts or an idea 
For a future episode, please email your questions to the request to info at Zamboni.com. Stay tuned for our next episode of Ask the Zamboni Experts podcast. Thank you, folks.